I'd like to zero in this afternoon, brothers and sisters, on Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's the Lord's Day that revolves around or asks about the matter of faith. In connection with that topic, faith, I'd like to read a selection of passages from the letter to the Hebrews. We begin in chapter 10 at verse 32. Hebrews 10 at verse 32. We read through to chapter 11, verse 2, and move on after that. So, chapter 10, verse 32, and here the Holy Spirit has the apostle write to the Hebrews, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old receive their commendation. And now we move on to verse 24 through 27 where we receive an example of faith. At verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And now we carry on from verse 32 through to chapter 12, verse 2. And what more shall I say? For time would fail made to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in battle, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, 
They're refusing to accept release. So that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world wasn't worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let's run with endurance the race as it before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So far, brothers and sisters, the reading from God's holy Word, it's a portion of Scripture that speaks about faith, trust, in God, whose Word doesn't change. I may this afternoon, brothers and sisters, proclaim to you the Word of our God as we could read it from Hebrews. As the church has summarized it, and we together confess it in Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Or as I seven, and here we repeat after God in our own words what we've heard the Lord say in His Word. Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perish through Adam? No, only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all His benefits. So what is true faith? But true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. At the same time, it's a firm confidence that not only to others but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works on my heart by the gospel. So what then must a Christian believe? All that's promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teaches in a summary. What are these articles? And the followers, brothers and sisters, the Apostles' Creed, which we hope to confess together momentarily. It's clear to us, given the Lord's that we just read, that the focus this afternoon is on faith. So let me suggest that if there is any topic 
about which you and I should be most knowledgeable and most convinced about. It's this whole topic of what is faith. After all, we know we need faith to be saved. We just confess that. Are all men then saved by Christ as they perish at Him? No, only those who have true faith. Okay, we need faith. Yes, we know that. Faith is important. And not only that, we also know that faith is so important that we're happy to come to church Sunday by Sunday because we know the Holy Spirit works, strengthens faith by the preaching. We want our faith strengthened, so we're here. Yes, we all know what, how important faith is, what faith is. Okay. So tell me what you think. Is faith a thing you have or something you do? What is it? Is faith a thing of your head or of your heart? Or maybe of your hands? What do you think? So let me say that faith is not a thing that you can sit there and say, look, you can see it, I've got faith. Faith isn't a thing, but it's an action. Faith is a verb, an action word. And it's not an action you do once and that's it. You've made professional faith. But faith is a repeated activity, an activity you do daily, repeatedly daily, with obvious consequences. Because faith is the action of seeing. Seeing. And then making decisions based on what you see. And so our theme for this afternoon, true faith looks steadfastly at Jesus Christ alone in all the challenges of life. True faith looks steadfastly at Jesus Christ in all the challenges of life. In developing the theme, I ask your attention for three questions. First is, what is true faith? Then how can we recognize faith? And third, why do we need to know this? So the first question that needs our attention, congregation, is what is true faith? Now, if there's any place in Scripture 
where the Lord explains to us what faith is, yet surely Hebrews 11. Very familiar to us. Verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Or, as it might perhaps be more familiar to an older generation, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's the King James and also the New King James translation of that verse. And I want this afternoon to zero in on this inspired definition of what is faith. But I want to say first that this particular definition is not thought up in a classroom, as in this is just nice theory. This definition, this description of faith, comes from a particular context. And that context is the last part of chapter 10. So if you take your Bibles and look with me at the verses we read from chapter 10. We began our reading at verse 32. And we did that because that's the verse where the apostle shifts to this topic of faith, and he does so by reminding his readers of their past. Their past when, X number of years ago, the gospel came to them and they were first enlightened. They came to faith. But by coming to faith, they received some pushback from those around them. The pushback is caught at the end of verse 32, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Was it family that laughed at you? Was it friends that disowned you because you embraced this ridiculous concept that the man who died on the cross in Jerusalem a few years ago is your Savior? I mean, and you're going to say he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven? And you get some pushback. But you endured that. The pushback, what they had to endure, looked, verse 33, sometimes like being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Were they laughed out of town? lose their job? Whatever the case might be, sometimes being partners with those so treated, so it wasn't only you who suffered, but you also saw your neighbor, your brother, your friend, suffering on account of the gospel, even imprisoned. Verse 34, you had compassion on those in prison. And, next part of 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Ooh. They burned your house down. They shut down your business on you. 
They froze your assets. Whatever. But your response was joyful acceptance. Why? Because you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That, brothers and sisters, is a reference to what Jesus said in Matthew 10. If you turn to that passage for a moment, Matthew 10. Verse 37 to 39. And there Jesus told his disciples, and that's in the context, verse 34, of don't think I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword, right? Okay, in that context, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever doesn't take his cross and follow me isn't worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And catch this, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, these Hebrew Christians, they came to faith. And as a result became the laughingstock of town. Properties plundered. And they said, you know what? Jesus said, if I love my dad or my mom more than my God, if I love my son or my daughter more than my Savior, if I've got to keep my business at all costs because I've got to save my life, I've got to feed my kids, and I love that more than my Redeemer, then I'm going to lose it all. Flip side, whoever loses his life for my sake, gives up father, mother, son, daughter, family, business, place, and community, etc., 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 whoever loses life for my sake will find it promise of the gospel. So, what did these Hebrew Christians do? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That better possession, of course, Jesus Christ. The eternal presence of God Psalm 16, at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. That, that's far better than the short term, having family, friends, business, etc. That was the thinking. But it seems, congregation, as the years went by, these Christians ran out of steam. And that's why the apostle says in verse 35, don't throw away your confidence. Verse 36, you have needed endurance. They're running out of steam. Spiritual flat tires. And then the question becomes, so how's the apostle going to pump up those tires? 
put wind back into their sails. And how's he going to do it? He quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2. Right? That's verse 37. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come, that's Jesus Christ, will come, he will not delay, and my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, and that's what the Hebrew Christians were in danger of doing, shrinking back. The apostle says, no, don't do that. Christ is coming. My righteous one shall live by faith. Faith. That's what you need in the face of the pushback that's wearying you out. And so we understand this matter of faith is vitally important. You see, that's where you get the definition of 11, now faith is. Is this just theory? No. No. This is real stuff in real life, your kind of life and mine. Now, brings us to chapter 11, 1, this description of what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, you'll notice we've got two parallel phrases there. They end up saying the same thing. The assurance of things hoped for, that amounts to the conviction of things not seen. The term assurance and the term conviction, that's one concept. The, the concept things hoped for and things not seen, that's the other. We read that. We've got a hard time visualizing what this description of faith looks like, especially the words assurance and conviction, or as the King James has it, substance and evidence. They're mm, slippery, vague kind of words. But the other part, things hoped for, things not seen, well, at least those are words we use all the time. So I want to focus on the latter part first, right? the, the, the things hoped for, things not seen, and then we'll circle back to the harder words. Things hoped for. In the realities of the readers to whom the apostle wrote this, the things hoped for is a reference to chapter 10, verse 34, the second part, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's the things hoped for, a better possession. I want that, and so it's okay that they plunder my property because that is more important to things hoped for. Now, I need to tell you that the word hope 
in Scripture does not carry the concept of uncertainty that today's use of the word hope has. Right? We use the word hope and we say, I hope that tomorrow the weather's nice. And there's an element of uncertainty there. But in Scripture, when the word hope is used, it catches the notion of certainty. 100%. Confidence. What I'm hoping for shall be. The reason? Because of who God is, what God has promised, God will do. Now, tell me, what is the effect of hope? The effect of hope. Imagine yourself climbing this long hill, steep hill. The reason for getting to that hill and setting out to conquer it is because somebody's told you from the top of that hill you get a fantastic vista, just a lovely view. You've seen a picture of it perhaps, and look, you want to get to the top, you want to see with your own eyes. Hope of things not seen. From partway up the hill, let's say in the trees, you can't see the view from the top. But in the eye of your mind, you've already seen it, right? You've got some sense up in here of what you're going to see when you get to the top. There's the things hoped for, you know the view's lovely, the thing's not seen, you haven't seen it with the eyes of the body, but already you're, you're imagining it, you're seeing it inside your mind. And that keeps you going. And when you get tired and you do sit down and you have yourself a moment of relaxation, what gets you up and going again is, is, is the things hoped for. The things not yet seen with the eye of the body. And the apostle's saying, what's faith? Things hoped for, things not seen. The promise of the presence of God, fullness of pleasure at His right hand, Psalm 16, that's something to to, well, already you see it in the eye of your mind. It's what you hope for, as in you're confident of it because God has said it. And so you keep on going up this hill all the way to the new Jerusalem because you want to see with your own eyes what God's promised. Fair enough, there's your hope, there's your things not seen. Now, what you're seeing already in the eye of your mind, look, that's the substance of what the eye of the body will see when you get to the top of the hill. That's the assurance 
that what you're hoping for is real. That's why you get up and you keep on climbing. That that whole concept, hoped for, not seen, I'm convinced it's so, it's the assurance of, it's the substance which you see in the eye of your mind. The apostles using the word faith a shorthand for that concept. And he's saying to the Hebrew Christians, you're running out of puff. You need endurance. You're sitting down partway up the hill. You've got to get up when you've got to keep climbing. And to do that, you need faith, meaning the substance of what's hoped for. I've told you the pleasures of God in the New Jerusalem, the beautiful view you get to the top. Well then, get up and keep on climbing. That's faith. So there's our, our first point. What's true faith? And perhaps you say, well, that's... <laughs> Can you color it in? It's still kind of vague for me. Well, it would seem, brothers and sisters, that we're not the only one that thinks it's still a bit vague. Because what's the apostle do next is give us a whole bunch of illustrations of what faith looks like. And I want to pick up one of those illustrations, the one about Moses, for our second point. How do you recognize faith? So, Moses, we're in chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was growing up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Well, we know the accounts of Moses, how he wasn't an Egyptian, but was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and as a result, he grew up in Pharaoh's palace. And you can imagine, congregation, the sort of perks that came with being the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, he's living in a palace. And so, he can have whatever his heart desires, be it in food, be it in music, be it in entertainment, be it in women, whatever, right? He's got a good life, no? But Moses knew the concept of Jesus' words in Matthew 10. His mother had taught him these principles. More important than your mom is your Lord and Savior, your identity as God's child by covenant. And so there came the moment when Moses looks out the window of the palace 
and he sees his brothers and sisters, the Israelites on the street below, slaves, abused, driven. And he remembers what his mom told him, that's, that's your people. And God's promised that your people are going to be set free and are going to receive the promised land. And so Moses, who may imagine, lifts his eyes above the misery of the people on the street, these slaves, and looks into the horizon and sees in the eye of his mind the promises of God fulfilled, my people will inherit the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And lifts his eyes farther and sees in the eye of his mind the glorious promise of God fulfilling all promises in Jesus Christ so that sinners today can live with God in the new Jerusalem. That's the ultimate reward in God's presence, fullness of joy. And so what's Moses do? This is the stuff happening in his head. He's seeing what the eye of the body doesn't see. This is the hope, the assurance of things hoped for. And as a result, what's he do? He leaves his mother behind. Right? His adopted mother? And he leaves the perks and the pleasures and the privileges of the palace behind. Says the passage, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Let it all go, the palace with its perks. I'd rather be mistreated with my people Israel because he's seeing, this is the hope he has, seeing in the eye of his mind the substance of the promises of God being fulfilled, not just in the land of promise in Canaan, but the promise of paradise restored. He says, and that, that's so much better than what Pharaoh's palace offers me. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking, there it is, looking to the reward. He was seeing what the eye of the body couldn't yet see. And so he made a decision to desert the palace and become an Israelite. Do you see, my brothers, my sisters, what was happening in his head? 
faith isn't simply that Moses is sure that there is going to be a land of promise and forgiveness and a new Jerusalem and all of that. But it's action. It's doing things on the basis of what he knows God has promised. That vision that he's seeing in his mind of the view from the top, New Jerusalem, gets him off his stump partway up the hill and keeps on climbing. Even if it means leaving father and mother and brothers and sisters and all the wealth and all the perks and trading for slavery. Faith. Action. Decisions based on what you see in the eye of your mind, the promise of the gospel. And that comes out again in verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. He'd killed somebody. So he's hiding from the police. Why didn't he stay underground? What got him out of his hiding place? Scripture says, faith. He looked beyond the police, and he saw on the other side the land of promise, and what that represented in terms of the blessings that come with Jesus Christ. And so he acts. His vision compelled activity. Left his hiding place. Fled. Clearly then, faith is not a thing, an object that you can put there and say, see, there, I got faith. Hebrews 11 is full of verbs. By faith Noah built, by faith Abram went, by faith Abram offered, by faith Sarah conceived. And the list goes on and on and on. Action. Action. Based on the conviction that what God has promised is the facts. It's what's going to be. It's the reality. And that, brothers, sisters, is Lord's Day 7. What's true faith? Look at your catechism. It's a sure knowledge. Whereby I accept as true all that God's revealed in His Word. Okay, so I'm needing to know all about God the Father Almighty, Creator, all about Jesus Christ, His only Son, 
Christmas and Good Friday and Easter and Ascension and Pentecost and so on, all the glorious deeds of God, but it's more. It's also, a, at the same time, a firm confidence that all that God has promised is, is, is actually for me. He's taken me by the hand and said to me, the new Jerusalem, my son, my daughter, is for you. Christ's work is yours. Promise of the gospel. And then faith says, yes! Grab hold of it and make your daily decisions with that perspective in mind. My destination, no matter what, is the new Jerusalem. Pleasures of God in His presence. Nothing gets better than that. I see it in the eye of my mind. That is the substance of things hoped for. And so I factor that in. To all the decisions I make in the process, do I have to let goods and kindred go? Does mortal life fulfill so? Well, so be that. Because far more important is the reward, the new Jerusalem, the presence of God. You see, that, brothers and sisters, is how faith works, is faith in action. It's how you recognize faith by the decisions you make. And so our last point. So why do we need to know this? Are all men saved by Christ just as they perish through Adam? No. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all His benefits. Faith! So important, essential. So what's faith? Brothers, sisters, the faith that saves is not that you're in church. They don't save you. The faith that saves you is not your singing hymn one momentarily. The faith that saves you is not having all the doctrine just straight in your mind. You've got it. Faith is looking steadfastly at Jesus Christ, 
His work, His benefits, His promises, His rewards, Christ. Looking at Christ in the challenges of life, what keeps you going up that hill is the view you already have in the eye of your mind. No matter how tired you feel, what keeps you going day by day in the grunts of real life is the view in the eye of your mind of what you see in the top of the hill. Paradise restored. Pleasures of God. Faith, looking steadfastly at Christ, what He's obtained for you. And then, in the hard stuff of life, factoring His victory, His promise, what you see into your decision-making. That's Hebrews 11. That's the concept the Hebrews had to grab onto again. Lest they lose their confidence altogether. And that's what's illustrated by a man like Moses and so many others. That's why James says, faith without works is dead. Uh Faith is action. It is seeing. And then making decisions based on what you've seen. The wonders of the work of Jesus Christ. And we hear this and we say, This actually accuses us because I make so many decisions without looking at Jesus Christ. I make so many decisions without that vision of the New Jerusalem in my mind. The decision to stay on my stump halfway up the hill. Or a decision to go on this side trail because it's easier. We're so weak. We find it hard to keep looking steadfastly at Christ alone and factoring His promises into the decisions we have to make. And so trust Him and obey Him and we fall so far short. And then we read in chapter 11, verse 32, what more shall I say? 
time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. There's a whole long row of saints who did all kinds of, well, endured all kinds of terrible things. Why? Because, because, verse 35, they were looking forward to a better life. The New Jerusalem. And we say, we're not like those people. They're obviously heroes of faith, and that's just not us. And so, brothers and sisters, look with me to chapter 12, verse 1. Look at what it says. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's all these saints of the Old Testament who kept looking to Jesus, and so they kept on going no matter the difficulties, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, says the apostle, look, let us also lay aside every weight. So you're climbing that hill, and you're tired. When you sat down for a breather, and you say, I can't go anymore. And the apostle says, then leave your backpack behind. Lay aside every weight, because the view at the top is worth it. Lay aside your backpack. Any sin which clings so closely, what people think of me, my possessions, my comforts, my hand on the steering wheel of my life. And the apostle says, let it all go. And let us run with endurance the race set before us, doing what? Looking to Jesus. Ah, that's what faith is. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And when you look at Jesus, what do you see? Where was Jesus when the apostle wrote this? Paradise, heaven, right hand of the Father, pleasures forevermore. That's where Jesus was. How did he get there? Who for the joy that was set before him, the presence of God, endured the cross, despising the shame. The apostle says, look at Jesus on the cross. He let everything go. He had nothing left. Father, mother, brothers, sisters, goods, reputation. He had nothing left. Why? Because 
Jesus was looking at the joy that was set before him. So he kept going up that hill of Calvary, the hill of the cross, and what kept him going was not looking at these faces, the people who abused him, but looking beyond to the pleasures at God's right hand. That Jesus, with that view, says the apostle, is the founder of your faith. Jesus acted by faith. His eye on his God and the promises of God. And so he's the perfecter of your faith. The Hebrews' faith? Wobbly, hmm, like ours. And the apostle says, keep looking to Jesus, the perfecter of your faith. You have faith? Your eye, steadfastly on Jesus Christ, you want to see that view from the top, the presence of God, all that Jesus has obtained, and you make decisions and step with that, yet yeah, that is faith. Faith that drives decisions, decisions to keep on going to the top, to the presence of God. Your faith wobbly? Welcome to the crowd. Jesus perfects your faith. That's the promise. Amen.